I, I'm just sitting there going like, it wasn't meant to be, you know, all this work, all this effort, I'm being punished for something. And, uh, well, you know, that just made something great's going to happen to me because there's no luck as bad as this luck, right? Like I have built up a, a bank account of positivity if this Hi, I'm Michael, founder of Quinn, and this is The Winwire, where we hear stories from industry leaders about their transformative career moments. Our guest today is Paul Oles, the Chief Revenue Officer of Sprinkler. Paul has built a fantastic resume in revenue leadership, leading Sprinkler's sales and success teams for five years and through a 2021 IPO. Paul has an uncanny track record of success, with nearly every company he's worked for over three decades being acquired or taken public. Before Sprinkler, he was Chief Revenue Officer of Tenfold, and VP of North America Sales at Fuse. Paul came highly recommended as both a leader and a storyteller. So I'm excited for you to hear about a memorable deal that changed his career. Now, what I think makes Paul's story really unique is that not only do we get to hear about a deal that would define most careers, but also get to hear about a client run-in that Paul had that was so bizarre, I honestly thought it was a parody of a LinkedIn post. So without further ado, Paul Oles. Paul, welcome to The Windwire. Michael, it's good to be here. Thanks for having me. You came highly recommended by Richard Rivera, who we've hosted on the podcast before. He mentioned you were one of the best strategic deal leaders he knows. So a very oh, high wow. compliment. That is. Thank you, Richard, if you're listening. But, you know, obviously you've had a storied career, which, you know, I just mentioned a little bit about in the intro. But we're here today to go behind the scenes on a deal that really sticks in your mind and changed your career. So we'd love to dive right in. You shared a bit about this deal with me already. I'm excited for listeners to hear about it. I think it's jam-packed with learnings that influenced your career, champion building, value. But more importantly, it also has one of the funnier moments that I've ever heard with a client. But you know, before we get started, can you just set the stage for us a little bit? Where were you in your career? And without spoiling the whole thing, you know, why was this one so memorable or career-defining for you and the company you were at? Yeah, well, thanks for setting that up. You know, I, this is over 10 years ago, I was a uh, individual contributor and, you know, I think what makes these memorable, it's not always the biggest deal you do or, you know, things like that. It, it's, it's lessons you take away from it. And sometimes, you know, it happens to be very large transactions, very strategic transactions, but you look back on it and there's a whole host of things that, you know, you're unconsciously competent sometimes that you don't know the definitions of things, you don't really know how they're supposed to work, but they, they do. And there's patterns that you start picking up that you carry forward with you. And it, you know, we, we, we're all like an amalgamation of our experiences. Right. And so my team, if they're listening to this, um, will laugh and some of them will shake their head and smile because it's things that I still talk about today that I picked up on through this experience and experiences like this. So yeah. So individual contributor, uh, 10 plus years ago, I was with a very small company. Uh, we were, I think at the time it raised like a series A, $2 million, something like 25, 30 employees and, um, <clears throat> didn't have a lot of money, had zero name recognition and, um, off we go. And somehow I joined, uh, this company was just super impressed by the founders and how smart these guys were and the problems they were setting off to solve. And, uh, they talked me into it. So yeah, that's the, that's the background for, uh, for where I was and what I was doing at the time. Got it. Got it. And obviously you took a leap yourself and 
clearly they hadn't necessarily done it all before and neither had you in some cases. But, uh, you know, I think it would be helpful to just take us through some of the scenes of the deal blow by blow. Take us back to that moment. What was the core business issue the customer was facing? Who were they? Um, and how did you first get in the door there? Yeah, I, I may not disclose who they were, but it'll probably accidentally come out at some point. So I'm going to do my best. Uh, it's been a long time, so I'm sure they wouldn't have any issues talking about it. But yeah, why don't we start with, you know, I think and I, as I go through this, I'll call out lessons that I still carry with me to this day. And I'll start with the first one, which is, and, and a lot of the founders at this company, the, the founders taught me this was, as you think about your your ICP, your ideal customer profile, it's less around for me, it's less around like the firmographics of a business. You know, how many employees do they have? What vertical are they in? And the kind of things that I think a lot of people think about with ICP. For me, what I was taught and I still carry with me is, do they have the kinds of problems that I can solve? Is their business one that, that has the attributes and characteristics that come with the kind of things my solution can help them solve. A lot of time that spans verticals and it's a lot of times that's not always super obvious. You can't go look at a database and always see those things. So it takes a level of research, but you have a hypothesis of how you can help. Um, and in this case, um, the, the particular product that, you know, we had at that time at this company, and this is going to date me a little bit. It was even before, it was definitely before the concept of AI, which is all the rage nowadays and which I'm a part of now at Sprinkler. It was even before the rage of predictive analytics. It was back when this concept was called big data for those that uh, recall that. So it was a big data solution and it was very focused on helping salespeople at that time identify cross-sell, upsell opportunities within their install base, which at the time was kind of a cutting edge new thing, right? Um, this particular company that I targeted, they had been acquiring a ton of companies, okay? And it was a lot of companies that were not necessarily in their traditional sweet spot of products. They were expanding their product set. And what was very clear is the biggest business issue, or at least the one that was being talked about the most by their CEO, by the analyst community, you could listen in to their, this is before you could like listen to recorded analyst conversations on earnings calls. You actually had to sit through the whole earnings call. Um, but it was very much about how do we monetize these acquisitions? Like you've made these bets. How are you going to go out there and in your existing customer base, upsell them more of these things? that you've gone, gone out and bought. So kind of lesson number one, net lesson number two for me, lesson number one was like ICP as, aha, this is a problem I can help solve, right? And, and you sat through that earnings call or, you know, how did you find, find that I out? Sat through, I sat through a bunch of earnings call for a bunch <laughs> of companies that were, that were my, on my target list. Yeah. Was it the most efficient uh, use of time back then? But, you know, it, it, it turns out that that's, and I still believe this, that the answer to the test are in the analyst Q&A of earnings calls. If you can skip, I mean, you know, there's all kinds of sources now where you can go find this information and read the transcripts, seeking alpha and all these different places or, you know, save hours of time for people in doing this. The analyst Q&A is when the executive team is in the hot seat and the analysts are going, hey, what about this? What about this? Like the problems and challenges a company have pretty clearly come to life in that analyst Q&A. So they were hammering on this pretty good. 
And so you've got this, okay, I know what the biggest business issue is. And it doesn't take a genius to figure out if you can attach yourself to the biggest business issue that a company has, or call it top two or three, that's where the focus, resources, budget are. And if you can make a clear case between the problem you're solving and that biggest business issue, the odds of your deal getting funded, approved, getting to the front of the line of people with uh, the line out the door with their pet projects, you get to the front of the line and you can command uh, a hefty fee if, if the, the business issue you solve has significant quantitative uh, improvement for the company. So that was like the other lesson. The, 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 the lesson I learned that was connected to that is that big business issue, that's at the C-level. That's the CEO telling Wall Street, this is how I'm going to solve it. Now, spiderwebbed off of that are a ton of uh, you know, strategic projects and initiatives that different parts of the organization own. But that's where you start getting a little lower in the organization, which is you're responsible for this that's connected to this big issue. You're responsible for this. They're all somewhat connected to this thing. And so my job, it was almost like an investigative reporter, or I used to say I was a, you know, a CIA agent or an investigative reporter. It was like, I'm in the shadows trying to figure out who owns these things, who is responsible because what I was doing, and this is before I even knew like the definition of a champion. If you think about like a medic term, I didn't know anything about that stuff, right? That was all completely foreign to me, but my instincts were probably the person who's on the hook for the initiative or initiatives that are connected to this C-level thing is the person I want to find, right? doesn't really take a genius to figure that out, but that's, you know, that's, uh, that, that's where I spend my time. And it's a phrase I've heard and I've stolen, you could say, but it's this concept of the chain of pain, which is the biggest business issue was the pain. The analysts were reminding this company of it every earnings call. And I had to find, go down the chain ultimately to the person who owned an initiative that was directly connected to solving this problem. Well, after uh, a ton of meetings and, you know, uh, back channel conversations and pushing myself to, to really have my face in the place by just anyone and everyone, I didn't care if they were an individual contributor or a manager of individual contributors or a C-level or whatever. It was like, I am on the search for the people or the person who ultimately is on, is on the hook for solving one of the major initiatives associated with this. And in this case, it was, how do we, uh, how do we get information in front of our salespeople, of which they had thousands globally, on which of their customers they should call and offer which of all of this portfolio of new products that we bought using analytics to do that. And this is like a multi, multi, multi billion dollar company. Yes. Yes. They're one of the biggest companies in the world. Yes. Yes. Um, and, and so, you know, that's another part of it. You know, I think as a, if you think about the ICP, it's like, well, if I have a seat based solution where, who has a lot of seats and that has this problem that I can solve. So I, I will admit that went into my hunt as far as my uh, my ICP as well. You know, yeah, look, we've it. raised a Series A. We have a couple of million. Yeah, why not uh, target one of the biggest companies in the world? Yeah. Yes, ignorance sometimes is your best uh, <laughs> your best weapon because I just didn't know any better to be honest. And maybe I was you know 
foolish, you could call it, but I like to say it was courageous. I like to say it was courageous to say why, you know, but there is an element of like, if you don't know any better, why not go for it? And, and, you know, it was like, and, and, and by the way, uh, a great lesson for founders is the founding team that probably could have said, wait a second, Paul, these guys are way too big. And this is like, you know, this is more than we can handle. Not a word. It was like, we can do it. We can do it. And so that is a great lesson uh, for CEOs and founders is like, as soon as you signal to your rep singular or more likely reps plural, that it probably can't be done. And maybe, you know, this is, this is more than, than we can handle is a signal to them that you're not bought in. Right. And so I never got that signal of negativity from them. It was like, we can do it. We can do it. We can do it, which my confidence went through the roof. So, so I'm, I'm, I'm following the chain of pain. You know, when I say get your face in the place, I, I, I will, this is also something my team hears me say a lot. It's like, I think I, I remember looking at, we, I had 82 face-to-face meetings at this company just through this process, right? Both in searching for my champion target, but then also I learned the importance of triangulation, which is I learned something about the initiative, about the individual that owns the initiative. Let's go find someone who's tangentially involved in this and just kind of in a respectful way, kind of say, hey, is, you know, is this person truly own this? And what, what's been your experience in them kind of driving things uh, to completion successfully in this company? I'm trying to learn. I'm just learn, learn, learn. And that's why I say I didn't discriminate between individual contributor. And by the way, the individual contributors I went and talked to a lot of times or practitioners or end users of these products, I just learned a ton about their pain that oftentimes the executive team wasn't even aware of in these companies, right? And it was like real things that they were like, man, if I had X, Y, and Z, or if I had this piece of information, I'm confident I can do my job much more effectively. So I'm making this case, investigative reporter. I find the person through triangulation, uh, try to understand, you know, is this? And so this person basically had been there not a significant amount of time. They weren't a lifer, but they were there long enough to have a network. And most importantly, they were, they were brought in with a mandate for change, right? So it was... They had worked with the executive team before in other places, which is an amazing signal of someone who's got a mandate for change. And I talked to my team a lot of times. If you, if your champion target was brought in by the executive team of the company where they currently work from a past life and a past job, that means they probably trust them, right? And so this person had worked with the executives before that were relatively new. They'd come in with some of these acquisitions that they had made. And it was clear to me they had a mandate for change. Now, another big learning for me, and I think I see a lot of people stumble on this, is there's a reason in the definition of a champion, titles aren't included. That's intentional, okay? Is I learned that Again, through experience, without having been trained on this stuff, just kind of picking up the the, uh, the school of hard knocks, I think this person had like a director title. And, you know, they were, God knows, double digits from the CEO of the company. But they 
A, personality-wise, they were very much a go-getter with big ambition. That was number one. There were things I started to sense in meetings when they came in, you know, silly things, but in hindsight, it's real. Like when they came in, people kind of quit talking and messing around and it was like time to get serious. They would sit at the head of the table. You know, you start picking up on these clues and, um, but they, you know, the title wasn't massive, but even when they would bring in some executives to these meetings, the executives would say, what do you think? You know, how does this kind of jive with your view of the world? And, and, you know, there was very much a, uh, a validation with this person. So, so I, it's a, it's a thing I try to talk to a lot of people about because you listen, especially in these big companies, I'm sure this is going to be controversial. I'm sorry if someone gets offended. There's a lot of empty suits high up in these companies. There are, right? There's layers upon layers. And just because I have XYZ title doesn't mean I have a mandate for change. As a matter of fact, what you find a lot of times is they're all about not changing things because it's like, let's just not disrupt things. I got a few more years before I'm out of here and I'd rather just kind of ride off into the sunset. And I'm saying this as a person who's got a C in my title, right? But it's the fact. Yeah, are you the empty leader? Yeah. I hope not. God, I hope not. But it, it, it's true. And, and so I think I see a lot of reps and AEs and they gravitate towards, well, my champion's got to be up the ranks, right? They have to, it's like, no, 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 no. Most of the action is happening in the middle of these companies of people who are like, the way I'm going to get into that seat is by really having some points on the scoreboard. And, uh, and, and so, you know, and then in addition to everything else that, that you hear about in a champion, you know, they're selling on your behalf. And most importantly, and the thing that people tend to, tend to miss the most is that they have access to and influence with the economic buyer, which this person absolutely did. Not only in the things I talked about earlier, they were brought in by these people to drive this initiative, but there's throughout this process, there's tests that you're kind of putting in front of these people. That's not right at the beginning, get me to the EB because I've yet not yet even come close to earning the right to ask that question, but it's things like, can you get some of your peers in the room? And my team always is going to laugh at this because they hear me use this analogy. It's, it's a little bit like dating, right? Will you meet me? Will you meet the friends? Will you introduce me to your friends, right? Which is peers that they bring into the room. And do, the, do those peers actually show up? That's the test, right? Like, can they get them to the room? Can they actually show up in the meeting? Will they participate in the meeting? And then, of course, meet the parents is when the relationship gets really serious in the dating analogy, which is the economic buyer, right? Um, but I, hadn't yet, I had not yet earned that right. So we're building this case. There's something that we're connecting to. Uh, this person is getting it. They are having meetings with peers because, you know, in some of the, in a lot of these deals, it's like getting a vote passed in Congress or parliament, or you got to get multiple senators to say yes, not necessarily because they have a yes vote. It's because you want them to avoid a no vote, right? You want them to avoid killing your opportunity. So this person was very much involved with getting multiple stakeholders on board that couldn't drive the deal, but they could kill it. And that involves everything from like IT organizations to, you know, marketing teams and, and, and the entire ecosystem. So those tests were being passed. Um, eventually we got the audience for, uh, and this was, uh, uh, another lesson is the economic buyer for deal one 
is not always going to be the economic buyer for deal number two, three, four, five. And so in this case, it was for deal number one, the economic buyer was the head of North America for this particular business unit. And it was one of these things where it's like, well, we can get them on board and go try to get everyone else on board over a long period of time to go try to do the massive big thing. Or do we do something smaller with North America and establish a proof point? And what, you know, the other lesson I learned I still carry with me is once you validated and tested this person is truly a champion, you got to listen to them. And in this case, after many conversations and many strategy sessions together, it was, we got to go do the smaller thing first, because if we can establish a proof point of success, then we have the greatest PR campaign and we go shop this to all these other segments and we go do the global agreement. This is, uh, you know, and I obsess about this today, drives me nuts when we don't do this. You have to capture the before state. So what is life like before we came in here and then measure obsessively on what life is like after my product has been rolled out. And in the case of this company and this product, it was a subset of sales reps where we divided them in two and gave one of them our stuff. And the other one, the other 50% of them kept doing business as usual and created like a test and control group. And the lift in the team that was using our stuff was something like 15, 20% higher cross sell upsell. And it was like, well, that's pretty cool. And, and, and so fast forward a little bit, it was, there was basically four geos in the world. We already had one North America that was bought in. We had to get LATAM, we had to get EMEA, and then we had to get APJ. So the next lesson I learned that has become super apparent to me, and I think most people will agree with this, is it became abundantly clear to me as we traveled the world together to get these different teams on board using this internal proof point that we had um, was that at the end of the day in enterprise sales, we are, we at the time, me as an AE, we're not salespeople. We are enablers of champions who become salespeople within their companies. And it was, it was to the point that, and I'm not suggesting people follow this, but he would call me at 9 PM at night and be like, I got this meet briefing with someone tomorrow at 7 a.m. I need you to put this, this, and this together. And I would drop what I was doing and I would do it because I started to become clear to me that he was building a champion deck. That's what I called it. It was this case that I was enabling him in the background. He wasn't keeping me out of meetings, but if we would go into meetings and I talked 10% of the time and he talked 90% of the time, that was an amazing meeting for us because he was selling internally. And so it became abundantly clear to me that I was, I was simply a sales enablement function for my champion and, uh, and was helping arm this person. And I was with him every step of the way. And then so, what, was, what was going through your mind at this point? Had you ever done anything like that? Was this totally new territory for you? Were you scared? Were you, you know, how were you feeling? Yeah, I mean, it was thrilling. It was thrilling, I gotta be honest. I mean, listen, it's, it's like, and, and Someday when we all hang up our pleats in this role, we're going to look back and it's, it's the thrill of the chase that I think is going to be the thing that everyone misses the most because, you know, when there, there's money you get and there's all these kind of things that's fleeting. If you look back at like I was on airplanes all over the world, you know, putting together these cases 
uh, for change that really was moving the needle for this company. And though, you know, the, uh, the, the, the partnership and career advancement that you've get, that you're giving to other people as you go through this is actually what you look back on. And then there's a whole ecosystem of people on my team at my, my SE, you know, it was like, God, man, Robin, we were like partners in crime through this, like, and, and so that's the stuff that you look back on. Was it nerve wracking? Yes. Every big deal blows up three times. I was taught that. And of course we hit obstacles where literally it was like, guys, it's over. We can't do it. And so you have to learn this kind of steady state mindset where the highs can't be too high. The lows can't be too low. You have to expect and wait. Something bad is going to happen. Only It's only blown up twice. That means it's going to blow up one more time. But once we get through this last blow up, you know, the goal line is right there. At least that's the optimistic way of thinking about it. But that factors into forecasting as well, right? If your deal hasn't blown up and you're calling it for this quarter, you may want to rethink that because these big ones have obstacles that are just hiding behind corners. Now, with a champion like I had in this case, armed with a bulletproof business case, it's amazing what obstacles you can overcome, right? And it's amazing when you have those two things, how all the other medic elements start falling into place. Decision process becomes crystal clear because this person is vetting this thing out. Decision criteria are shaped 100% in, in your favor right? We've already connected to pain. We've implicated the pain at the front end of this. We've got metrics within their company. We've already quantified the problem. Um, and then of course, you've got the most important thing, which is the most important thing in sales is the ability to build champions. There's not even a close second place. It is the number one most important thing in enterprise sales. So we've got these things. We're, we've got everyone on board. LATAM's on board. EMEA's on board. And this is, we're going on like 14, 15 months at this point from the first kind of small transaction that we did. Last one is Asia Pacific. And the company's based in, uh, uh, their, their, their Asia Pacific headquarters were in Sydney, Australia. So the meeting is, this is the last one. If you can get this last GM on board, we're going to do the global deal. Okay. So. Sydney is not that close to Austin, Texas. So I, we decide we're going to get there a couple of days before. I think the meeting was on a Monday. I arrived like on a Thursday or Friday. We prepped together. And then we kind of, on the weekend, I decided I was just going to go by myself and play some golf. Okay. And now Sydney, I don't know if you've been there, but real estate is at a premium, right? And so these golf courses, or at least the ones... I was choosing, you know, they're set up so like the fairways just run parallel with each other, right? It's not like you see in like the Southwest United States. It's the, these things are on a plot of land and they really cram them in there. So I give you that as context. I share it by myself. I can't remember why Champion didn't want to play. And um, I share it by myself, rent clubs, you know, buy a sleeve of golf balls. And um, as I'm teeing off, I'm noticing there's all these other people there that are wearing like matching jerseys. So it's like, they're on like teams, you know, it's like four or two on two, they're in carts and it's very, very serious. 
somehow I get wedged in like in between them. I'm a single and they let me go off and I, I tee off and play a couple holes, blowing it all over the place. And because these fairways are like so close to each other, I hit one, I go down the fairway. It's like just in the other, it's in the rough and there's two balls there. All right. And so I'm sitting there and I go, man, I forgot which ball I was playing. You know, they're like both Titleist. And I'm like, did I have a Titleist three or a Titleist four? I'm sitting there forever waiting for someone to show up. And I'm like, you know, I, I got to hit one of these. And it doesn't sound like you're, good. you're a golf purist in the truest sense. At least no, at this point. I would not be accused of that. No, at least not at that time, nor am I a good golfer, which makes this even worse. Right. So I, I end up waiting. No one comes. I end up hitting this ball jump in my car, drive down to the, to the green. Well, all of a sudden this car comes trucking towards me, matching jerseys, you know, big burly Aussie jumps out, asked me, did I happen to hit Titleist, whatever it was. And I'm like, man, you know what I did? I'm so sorry. And you know, I'm like Texan in Sydney, Texan accent, American accent. It's probably pretty memorable. Hey man, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to hit your ball. And he wasn't pleased. I think he had to take a stroke. It's like, as if we Americans don't have a bad enough reputation. Yeah. Yeah. The Yanks just going around messing up people's very serious golf tournaments. Fast forward to the next day. It's that Monday. The head of uh, APJ, uh, Asia Pacific, comes in the room. Champions there. I turn around. How many millions of people live in Sydney, Australia? And I happen to hit the golf ball of the last decision maker in my global deal comes in and makes eye contacts with me and realizes this is this idiot American who hit my ball. So needless to say, the meeting doesn't start off with a bang. Um, I mean, what is even going through your mind at that moment? How are you even able to keep your cool? I'm just sitting there going like, it wasn't meant to be. You know, all this work, all this effort, I'm being punished for something. And, uh, well, you know, that just means something great's going to happen to me because there's no luck as bad as this luck, right? Like I have built up a, a bank account of positivity. If this bad, you fly around the world, uh, into a city of millions of people only to end up hitting the golf ball. That one guy who is a final decision maker in your global deal. Well, once again, a tested, proven champion with an amazing business case and a very good sense of humor uh, saves the day. We, we had a great meeting. Some, fortunately, Australians are great people who like to have a laugh. This guy laughed it off. We had uh, an amazing meeting. We got the last vote on this thing. And uh, you know, it ended up being a, a great deal for our company. It was, uh, you know, I think I'd said we had, we had raised like $2 million in a series A. So it was like a round of funding for us. It was something like $5 million a year, three year global, global transaction. But, you know, like I said earlier, it's less about the, the financial size of it and more about, you know, the, the foundation it gives you, um, of more than anything to, to tell people and coach people and hopefully teach people a thing or two around what not to do because of the scar tissue that you've got built up through the years of making 
making the wrong decisions, but every now and then there's some right ones that'll carry you forward. So um, overall, a great experience. Yeah. It's pretty amazing. I mean, you just mentioned this is almost like raising another round of funding for the company in a way. And I think there's an interesting aspect to this. Given what a small company comparatively you were, this was a totally new echelon. It took a long time to really make it all come together. I think every company, many sellers are trying to figure out how to be the first and how to bat above their weight. I mean, it's the case for me today, running Kuen. It's, you know, we're a small startup trying to make our mark, big deals. It can be scary for the champion to stake their reputation on something like yeah. you guys. I mean, how did you manage to get them feeling good? And then what kind of impact did it have on your company? Yeah. So you, you know, in something like that, and, and obviously I didn't cover this in detail, but you touched on something that's important. I mean, it, it is, you have to realize it, these companies want to see it's more than just, you know, you and your SC, that there is uh, a set of people behind you that are all about making them successful. It's the executives of your company. It's those who have to deliver. You know, you, you, you get product in many of these cases involved to, to show them the methodology around how you're, you know, how, how you're writing your software, how customer input goes into that, shaping the roadmap. Um, they really want to understand all these things and you should be proactively. For me, it's a champion test many of the times is, are they willing to invest that amount of time in you and in those kinds of discussions? Because if they're not willing to do that, now, someone is going to show up at the 11th hour asking to do those things anyway. So let's proactively pull those forward. Let's, let's do these steps so that when pressed and you're asked the hard questions, have you done a security audit? Have you done these things? You know, have, have we met with their, their, their services team to understand their methodology? So you have to not only do those things, my suggestion is you proactively do those things through this process. Because in a transaction of that size for a company that small, like we were, somebody's going to ask for those things. It pushed us, it made us better. And, th and that's the other benefit to some of these customers. Now, now, listen, I've seen some customers like this take companies down with their complexity, right? Then it can actually paralyze a company. So it's a fine line. But if it's, if it's a problem multiple companies have, and it's, it, it, it's, a, it's a problem that can be spread across different industries and different use cases, but the core of the problem is the same. You can obviously go then approach multiple companies and it becomes a, a scalable solution, but the big ones kind of get you into shape, right? They push you to do the kind of things you are going to have to do. If it's not with them, it's going to be someone else down the road and it's bet much better to to know what's coming and to, to, to have those boxes checked before you truly try to scale up to the enterprise. You know, it's, it's interesting. That was a pivotal moment for you. I was looking at your LinkedIn a little bit before we got on here and you know, you have an uncanny track record of going to companies that ultimately get acquired or in this case, IPO. And I just kind of wanted to ask you, what do you think has been the key to how you look at companies that are worth giving your time to and evaluating them. And, uh, you know, of course, if it's, it's all because of you that they achieve these successful outcomes, feel free to say that as well. <laughs> no. And, and, and trust me, some have been more 
successful than others. I'll just put it that way. Um, sure. Listen, at, at the end of the day, for the role I'm in and the types of teams that I, I end up leading, it's not much different than the way you look at a deal um, or an opportunity. It, it's really kind of, a, a, it. can you ans- clearly answer the three whys, right? Why do anything? The three whys related to the solution that this company has. You know, is this problem they're solving on the why anything, is the problem they're solving such that it gets to the front of the line of the funding opportunities, the budget being made? Is it, is it a, is it a, does it solve a kind of a vitamin situation, which is, yeah, this would be great to solve someday, or is it a truly a painkiller? Like, man, we need this solved right away. So that's number one. The why now part of the three whys is, is it such that, you know, kind of what I was saying with the, with the, with the vitamin and painkiller, is it going to get to the front of the line? And in some cases, it's so innovative that maybe you're ahead of your time too, right? Is it mainstream enough that it's, it's a problem that people understand and they're going to, you know, they're comfortable enough saying it's bad enough that we got to solve it now, but it's not so cutting edge and scary that let's let some others do it first. Right. And then the, uh, and then the last one is of course, why that company, is there something that company has? Usually this comes down to like kind of an architectural advantage. Is there something that company has in the way they've been built in the way they've architected themselves that will provide some level of, you know, differentiation that none of it's ever everlasting differentiation, by the way. But is, is there enough of a lead there where everyone is playing catch up? So big problem that is, uh, can provide some kind of time-based so- solvent now. And, and does this company have something that architecturally makes them different? And then there's other things around this is like, has the team done it before? Has the executive team done it before? You know, uh, have they done it in the kind of environments that you're comfortable being in? Right. Or are you, are you kind of crossing into different worlds with each other where things may not jive long-term, but as far as like, will a company be successful? It's really, can you answer the three whys as a candidate to go work at that company? And it's about, doesn't go much deeper than that for me. And of course, every acquisition, some of them are more successful than others to your point, but I, (laughs) I did find that really curious. Yeah. We've obviously talked about something really career defining for you that you learned from, from a personal experience, of course. Sometimes you can learn just as much from other folks and their experiences and their mentorship. Uh, you know, who are one or two leaders or mentors that have really impacted your career uh, and why? Yeah. Well, I'm going to give you one more than one or two. And by the way, I, uh, I ask this question from people all the time in interviews. Um, and I force them to give me one or two and I'm breaking my own rule. I'll be quick here, but I think it's more than just naming people. It's specifically kind of what they, taught you along the way. Um, but there's the founders of this company I just talked about, the ex McKinsey, they, that was their background. So really like digging into deep business problems and obsession with solving problems, uh, attaching to the biggest business issue. And then how you articulate that to the sea level was uncanny in their ability to do that. Then I plugged into this world of kind of repeatability, like 
some of those instincts I was talking about early in this deal that I didn't have definitions for and names for. I moved into that world and working with people like Dan Fougere and Scott Davis at Medallia, you know, worked closely with uh, uh, Cedric Pesch, who's now the, the CRO at MongoDB, taught me a ton around kind of how to build and scale sales organizations, you know, and then most recently uh, from a mentorship and leadership, Luca Lazarone, who was a CRO here at Sprinkler before me, just an amazing leader and really taught me and many others a lot how to kind of lead with inspiration of teams first, getting them to convince themselves they can do things they previously didn't think they could do, coaching them relentlessly on how to do those things, really providing them a blueprint for success and, and getting their commitment to adhere to that blueprint, which then leads to at that point in time, you've earned the right to hold them accountable and kind of inspect, are they doing the things that we both mutually agreed we were going to do together? And that framework that Luca taught me is, has really helped me and many others a ton. So those, I've been pretty fortunate in the last couple of years, you know, kind of starting with, with Dan all the way up through to Luca and the folks in between that I've had some great influences. And, uh, like I said, you end up being like a quilt work of, of your experiences. And, uh, and I've had some great ones. And, and now even on my board of directors with Kevin Averty, who, uh, I know we both know on the board, Kevin's just ton of real world relevant knowledge for me because he's been through it all in his ride at places like ServiceNow. So it's been a, uh, I've been, had no shortage of some, some great folks to learn from. Yeah. I don't think you get to a place that you are today without that kind of village of support, honestly. Um, no doubt. But yeah, I, I really appreciate the time, Paul. This was great. Uh, thank you so much. Yeah, Michael. Good to talk to you, man. Thanks for the time. Thanks, as always, for joining us on another episode of The Windwire. We'd appreciate it if you could share it on LinkedIn, Twitter, and rate us or leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. Helps others discover the show and join our growing community. Our contact info is in the show notes, including our show email. You can see all episodes at thewindwire.com and in your favorite podcast player. And don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. 